Welcome to the Peace Catalyst podcast, where we share stories to inspire, uplift, and encourage you in your peacemaking journey. I'm Becca Pugh, and I work with Peace Catalyst in the Washington, D.C. area, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Keith Giles. Yeah, hi, Becca. Um, Hey, everybody. It's Keith, and um, my wife, Wendy, and I are working with Peace Catalyst International in El Paso, Texas. And uh, we are continuing our Muslim Women of Peace series here on the Peace Catalyst podcast. This is a series where we talk with Muslim women peacemakers who inspire us to walk the path of peace in our everyday lives. And these conversations are, uh, we think are important because we feel like if we take the time to listen to what some of these women are doing, it would help us understand how we, as followers of Christ, can also change the world around us and become better peacemakers by working together. We're so excited to share our next interview for this episode, which is Anila Afzali. Anila is a good friend of Peace Catalyst, and she's the executive director of the American Muslim Empowerment Network at the Association of Puget Sound. Um, She's also an attorney and graduate of Harvard Law School and many other incredible things that we'll get into in this episode. Anila, welcome. We're so grateful to have you here with us. Thank you so much for having me. So I know among each of your roles, you've served as, you've worn many different hats. You've been a community activist, an interfaith leader, an educator, a strategic advisor, and a civil rights advocate. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about your role with AMEN slash MAPS and, you know, what is the mission of that organization? Sure. So thank you again for having me, Becca and Keith. It's an honor to be here with you. Uh, and I'll say that I started my role at MAPS Amen uh, specifically after I left my legal career. I tell people I am a recovering attorney. <laughs> I left my legal career in 2013 after I had a spiritual transformation that brought me back to my faith uh, and really drove me to pursue service and knowledge, which are two very strong uh, aspects of my Islamic faith. So I had this transformation and I was looking around in our country and noticing this growing divide in our country, uh, this sort of growing misinformation campaign that was contributing to that divide. And this misinformation campaign uh, or sort of of, uh, organizations and individuals essentially bearing false witness uh, against their Muslim neighbors. I was seeing that. I was seeing this rift and division that was really tearing apart our country from within. And this was happening at the same time that I myself was experiencing such a beautiful transformation that I was seeing in myself and in my family with the religious transformation that I had coming back to the faith. So that led me to look at how uh, I could specifically contribute to addressing this growing divide in our country. And that's how we launched Amen at MAPS. I came up with this idea, this vision that I had to specifically address the roots of the anti-Muslim sentiment, recognizing that it's so connected to many other forms of oppression. So recognizing that when I'm combating Islamophobia, I am also, or I have to be combating other forms of hate and oppression uh, that are ha- that, that we're seeing in our country that were also increasing at that time, uh, post sort of 2016. Uh, this includes, of course, uh, racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, uh, and much more. So we launched AMEN with the specific goal uh, of sort of four pillars. Uh, The first sort of pillar or focus area was to help educate our fellow Americans about Islam and Muslims, because unfortunately, the majority of our fellow Americans do not personally know a Muslim. And Mm -hmm. given misinformation campaign that was happening with the Islamophobia industry, they were getting a lot of misinformation and really uh, it was resulting in real life harm, both to Muslims and to all Americans. So that was number one. Number two, in terms of focus, was building coalitions with other groups and allies and really mobilizing us to work together on effective ways to address some of the multiple various sort of uh, justice issues of our day, including combating hate and white supremacy and other forms of oppression. 
Number three focus area was really looking at media misrepresentations uh, about Islam and Muslims and other marginalized groups and doing work to challenge those negative stereotypes and seeking to achieve a more fair and accurate representation of Islam and Muslims at a time when, you know, studies were showing that the overwhelming majority of representations of Islam and Muslims were negative in media and even derogatory uh, and inflammatory as well. And finally, the fourth focus area was to empower and engage the American Muslim community to become active in the issues of our day and become sort of future leaders here in our country. Wow, that is amazing. Um, Can you, uh, I definitely want to get into some of these specific areas that you uh, outlined that you focus on. This is Really, this is exactly what we want to talk about um, in uh, in this interview. But you, I, I can't get beyond. I really want you to talk, if you can, a little bit about. You mentioned at the beginning the spiritual transformation that you experienced that kind of drove you back into your faith, and that kind of sparked everything else that you you, you wanted to do. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, what did that involve, and what was that like? Yeah, absolutely. So I was born Muslim but uh, and raised in a Muslim household. Uh, but what I tell people is I was essentially a Ramadan Muslim, uh, right? Kind of like Easter Christians or Christmas Christians or <laughs> Yom Kippur right. Jews. Uh, so I was very much practicing during the holy month of Ramadan. But outside of that, uh, I was sort of living my life without religion being an important part of it, unfortunately. And uh, my mom was always devout and practicing, but my dad was not. And we seemed to sort of follow his his route just so, as children just because it was easier. So I was a Ramadan Muslim, even though in college I chose Islam for myself after doing a thorough analysis, a comparative analysis of different religions and different faiths. And I really chose it, I tell people, with my mind at that, par- at that point in time. Uh, it hadn't really transformed my heart. So I continued sort of, again, just being a Ramadan Muslim through college, through law school, through my legal career. And I reached this point after I had had, fortunately, a lot of success in my legal career where everything I I realized that everything I'd been asking for, um, I essentially had gotten. And I had been just so ungrateful as an individual to God, even though I believed in God, even though I believed that Islam was the right path for me, I still hadn't really shown that in my behavior. I would say, you know, words of gratitude with, with my sort of words with my mouth, but not really have that transform my mind or my actions in a real profound way. And it was also this time where I was just sort of uh, assessing my life and sort of thinking about the meaning of life and what's my purpose here and having all of these thoughts. And it happened to uh, uh, come to the time of Ramadan. And during that Ramadan in 2012, I actually read the Quran for the first time cover to cover in a language that I understood. And it really moved my heart. And that was sort of that that piece that just, um, I, I, I tell people at that time, it really really uh, uh, sort of changed, transformed my heart. So it wasn't just a mind decision for me to be Muslim, but it was a transformative decision of my heart. When it changed my heart, I knew I had to change my behavior. And part of that was looking at what I was doing, where I was at, who I was hanging out with. And I realized that I was in a toxic environment and I really had to pull myself out of that and get away for a bit to really reflect on my life and my direction and figure out what my purpose and passion is. Is, and I knew that I would have to sort of center my faith in that process. And this happened at a time where a lot of people were like, well, what are you going to do? You know, friends and families and loved ones, they were asking me, what am I going to do? Because everybody was shocked with my decision to just leave my legal career with no assurance, no plan, just recognizing that I was going to place my faith and trust in God. And I just did that. And I had that faith, even though it got a little bit challenged at times, but I had that faith and trust. Um, Uh, And everything just worked out and fell into place. And it was almost like I could see this divine puzzle sort of coming to light and and, and be able to witness the the power uh, of of the divine in my daily life. Mm, That's beautiful. Wow. I can definitely relate to that, too, kind of coming to a reckoning point in your faith where you realize that maybe some people that you're surrounded by aren't really... um, maybe aren't as invested as you or, or haven't experienced that same growth. So I can relate to that. Um, and I'm curious if part of that kind of spiritual journey for you 
Um, how did that motivate you to build relationships with people across, you know, religious, cultural, political differences? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I would say that my faith teaches me to sort of love love my neighbors, you know, regardless of what kind of neighbor they are, uh, to sort of have that love and mercy and compassion for humanity and to do my part to uh, sort of build bridges uh, of understanding and unity with others of all backgrounds. This is part of sort of the value system that I see in Islam. And there are sort of verses from the Quran that that talk about this. So that was a little bit of sort of inspiration. Uh, the other piece that was really big for me was a strong sense of justice that I've always had throughout my life. And when I had my spiritual transformation, that sense of justice is just so strong in the Quran. And it's just powerful uh, in, in its sort of um, emphasis. And that uh, that sense of justice drove me to recognize that alone, individually, you know, different, whether me as an individual or different isolated groups, especially marginalized groups as individuals, cannot really be a Effective. We really need to build those bridges of understanding and unity because I believe that's God's work. I believe that's what God wants us to be doing out there is to be building bridges of love and unity and peace uh, in the world. And I felt like that was my role and responsibility to do my part in, in doing exactly that. And at the same time, using those bridges, once they are built, using those coalitions, those alliances to really advocate for sort of the least among us, right? Like, like advocate for marginalized communities and issues of injustice, address them collectively, knowing that we are all stronger when we stand together, when we come together and advocate together. And it's such a powerful feeling uh, to have, especially when we're talking about people from different faith traditions coming together, faith leaders and others of different backgrounds. When we stand together and sort of um, issue statements or collectively call for something, some issue of justice, Justice, whether it's whatever it might be, Black Lives Mattering, whether it's uh, taking a stand against Islamophobia or anti-Semitism or whatever the issue might be, when we do that together with a united moral voice from different faith traditions, it is so powerful and well-received. And I, I remember with, with the family separation policies and, and the challenges to DACA, uh, we had a rally that I helped organize and we had different faith leaders standing together there uh, with me as I was speaking to the crowd. And I'm looking into the crowd uh, as I'm speaking and I'm seeing people tear up during my, uh, during my speech. And I was kind of wondering, because we had had prior people uh, speak before me, who were actually directly impacted folks and their stories moved me. And I could understand people crying or, you know, having tears at that time, but I was surprised that people were tearing up when I was speaking. And later when I spoke to folks, even people who are agnostic themselves or atheists, they said it was so powerful to see that visual of people, faith leaders of different backgrounds standing with a united moral voice. Mm -hmm. And that's when it really impressed upon me how important that power is. And that imagery is just so uh, moving to, and compelling to so many people that it, we need to find more of that. So that there's sort of a impact level, there's a, a value level, there's a, a basic role and responsibility from my faith tradition and as a human being, um, and also just having that sense of love uh, for our neighbors of all backgrounds, all of that sort of fuels my desire uh, to, to build those kinds of bridges across different religions, especially when there's so much that unites us within faith traditions, and especially when there are attacks on religion in general, uh, and sort of, you know, people of faith in general, I just see so much commonality. And I do believe that all of our various faith traditions ultimately uh, sort of reinforce certain values and, and, and sort of moral teachings that we share. And in fact, in Islam, we are taught that God sent messengers, prophets and messengers to different people. People, different tribes, different communities throughout history with the same essential message. And that same essential message, uh, you know, I, I summarize it as sort of the idea of worshiping and serving the one true creator and serving his creation, uh, ser serving the creator by serving his creation. Like that's essentially that with the golden rule is essentially mm -hmm. what 
all of our faith traditions teach. And if we can unite on those sort of commonalities instead of amplifying the differences that cause division, I believe we would be all better off. Oh, yes, absolutely. I totally agree. And now, so you mentioned these four pillars that you started focusing on when you launched um, MAPS and uh, AMEN. And um, the first one you you identified, and I think it's so important, it's sad that it has to be something, but it, but it is unfortunately something that we have to um, constantly address, which is this, uh, this Islamophobia campaign um, and educating people, non-Muslims, about Islam, because again, most of what they see in the media, here on the news, um, and unfortunately, I would say even in, uh, I, I can speak from many Christian circles that I've been in before, um, people that do not know Muslims personally, they don't know anyone who's actually Muslim, uh, and they just kind of regurgitate the stereotypes and things that they've heard, which are not accurate. So um, overcoming that and educating people um, about Islam and what it is and what it isn't, um, I agree. I think that is probably the probably the first thing you need to uh, address. So how do you do that? What are some of the things you do um, to do that education process and to help uh, kind of change people's minds about Islam from people who are outside the faith? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a number of different ways we do that. I, I speak a lot. I do a lot of speaking engagements, educational programming, uh, go do outreach to different communities and different organizations. Uh, you know, we've done pres- I've done presentations, for instance, at conferences for judges across Washington State. Uh, have worked with police officers. Uh, are working with schools. Uh, have given presentations to places of worship, uh, churches, synagogues, and more. So there's been a lot of different. Uh, educational content like that. But some of the things that I want to highlight, particularly uh, in this setting, is number one, uh, a roadshow that uh, Reverend Terry Kylo and myself did. We called it the Faith Over Fear Roadshow. And what we did Mm. is we had this program to educate our fellow Americans about, again, this this, uh, industry that's promoting uh, anti-Muslim sentiment uh, and also uh, helping uh, folks understand who their American Muslim neighbors are. And we intentionally chose cities across Washington that were more sort of rural conservative towns. Uh, And I remember the first stop on that sort of roadshow was Longview, Washington, which is a small conservative town that had voted uh, majority for Trump in in the 2016 election. Uh, And I remember going there and I had people even warn me because there's a very small uh, Muslim community, if any, in Longview. But I had people warn me that I should be wearing a bullet proof vest. Like that's how serious some people took the the potential threat of me even going into a a place like Longview. Uh, And Mm. I said, okay, I'm not going to do that. You know, God is my protector. Uh, And Reverend Terry Kylo and I went there and we had worked with a church to to set up that event. And the church had set out probably about like, I want to say like 30 chairs thinking, okay, we'll have a small audience here. It'll be, uh, you know, nice discussion. We'll see what happens. And as we saw, people started pouring in and they had to keep bringing out more and more chairs. Eventually we had about 60 folks, 60 chairs there in that church room. And as we're speaking after this sort of two hour presentation that included Q and A, I had two different individuals come up to me and tell me how moved and transformed they were with that experience. They admitted to me that I was sort of the first Muslim they had met in person. Um, and, you know, their their representation of Muslims was really what they saw from essentially Fox News. Uh, and they yeah. admitted that they had this hatred and this fear inside their hearts. And they just felt like they'd been liberated from that. And, and we hugged and, and they even uh, shed some tears. And it was just a moving and profound moment. Uh, and it's that kind of bridge building and personal connections and personal stories that really makes the difference. Uh, and I've, I've had that kind of experience of seeing people transform in multiple venues. The roadshow was one experience. Uh, there was an anti-Muslim hate rally that was organized by the largest anti-Muslim uh, group in our country, Act for America. And I recall in particular one instance where a couple, uh, the woman, the wife was in a wheelchair, the, the husband was with her. Uh, I put up a sign that said, Ask a Muslim Booth. You know, we had this Ask a Muslim Booth that we put up and I was there answering questions. And this couple came to me, the woman in the wheelchair had a sign on her lap that had anti-Muslim views, 
sort of stated on there. Um, and they came to me and they talked to me and we're talking and they clearly were sort of very anti-Muslim um, and they were sharing a lot of stuff that was just inaccurate about the Quran and about it, what Islam teaches and everything else. Uh, and a lot of what they were saying was essentially the talking points from the Islamophobia industry. But as, as we're talking, you know, through that course of personal interaction and communication, we reached this point where I forgot exactly what the, what the lady was saying, but I held her hand. And we just had this moment of connectedness. And I didn't know this, but there was a Reuters uh, a journalist there, a reporter, who took a picture of that moment of me holding her hand. Now, I don't know if I changed her heart or mind. I don't know if her views differed. But at least we had a meaningful interaction and connection that potentially, or at least had the possibility of, of uh, you know, having far more of an impact on her than if I had dismissed her or others as racist, Islamophobic, or anything else. Um, and I've also done a lot of work specifically in outreach with evangelical Christians. Uh, I know I've worked with PCI in some instances uh, and worked with others as well, including an event that we held at, uh, at the Muslim Association of Puget Sound exclusively for evangelical Christians and, and Muslims, bringing them together uh, to sort of, you know, these are two communities that unfortunately, uh, according to studies, uh, evangelical Christians have the worst view of Muslims from any yeah. sort of community and bringing them together in a room. And we had about 100 people there. And after that, we, we had a meal together. We spoke and, and sort of presented. Uh, uh, you know, I spoke uh, uh, and, and we had somebody else speak as well. And it was just a moving experience for so many of those evangelical Christians who admitted that afterwards. You know, a lot of them had never met a Muslim in person before. A lot of them had never been inside of a mosque before. Um, but it was, uh, again, those moments of humility humanity that offer the possibility for transformation and change. And I will just close with this on that point is that there's a verse in the Quran that speaks directly about this. You know, I, I believe it's Quran 41, chapter 41, verse 34, that says that the good deed and evil deed are not alike, that repel evil with good. And then the one who is hostile to you will become as a devoted friend. And mm. I will say that is so powerful because I've personally witnessed and experienced that happen throughout time. And that's sort of what, what continues to inspire me to do this kind of outreach, even to the people who may hate us, even to the people who commit acts of sort of uh, violence against like our mosque, our sign was vandalized twice in less than a month. And I remember issuing a call when we held an event uh, following uh, the act of vandalism. We issued a call with press there saying, hey, whoever did this, we still welcome you to come to our mosque and learn about us. Because a lot of it is, is fed and promoted by fear and ignorance and misinformation and disconnectedness that we can hopefully address through personal interactions and connections and, and knowledge. That is powerful. I That last um, passage from the Quran that you shared, we recently uh, read that in our scriptural reasoning group that we're doing with PCI, and it was about nonviolent responses to hatred. Um and that's a common value that we have in Christianity as well is to, you know, we're called to love our enemies and bless those who persecute us. Yeah. And that speaks all, again to the commonalities that we share. A lot of what I tell yeah. folks, particularly Christians or, or people of other faith traditions, when I engage in these speaking events or otherwise is, you know, don't do this out of like this sense of like, hey, you want to help Muslims or you want to sort of uh, uh, don't, don't do that of a sense of obligation or because you want to help others. Do it because it's what your own faith tradition teaches you, right? Like my own faith mm -hmm. teaches me certain things and that motivates me to do the peace building and bridge building work that I do. And especially sort of people of other faith traditions, if they have these kinds of similar teachings in their faith tradition, hopefully that can inspire all of us to act. And if we're doing it based on our own faith values, uh, it, it tends to be a lot stronger of a motivator than just doing it sort of, you know, oh, I want to help them kind of mindset. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's also, you know, being motivated by faith, but then also having kind of this, some of us, I think, lack ideas about, you know, what are practical steps that we can take to build bridges and to make peace with, with people who are different from us. And so, um, Anila, for our listeners, you know, what's one piece of practical advice that you would give them about, you know, what are maybe what's one maybe step they could take to to build bridges and reach across um, to communities or people who are different from them um, and foster peace? 
Yeah, that that's tough, especially right now because we're facing a pandemic. Uh, so we don't have the same opportunities for gatherings and get-togethers and interactions that we would otherwise have. Uh, hopefully, once we get past this pandemic, uh, folks will step up and visit a mosque, for instance, and get to know their Muslim neighbors, attend in particular uh, interfaith iftars or breaking of the fast that occurs during the month of Ramadan. I think food is such a strong uniter, uh, and we can all sort of agree on good food and enjoy that together. But having those kinds of personal interactions with something positive, I think that's really powerful. Um, uh, but because of the pandemic, since we can't do that, uh, I would advise folks to look for opportunities and ways to engage virtually at the very least. Uh, you know, Ramadan is coming up, I believe, in end of April, May, sometime. Uh, and during Ramadan, there will be many interfaith opportunities, even in a virtual capacity, so folks can hopefully participate in that. And then I would also recommend certain resources for folks that are not sort of the, the, the typical information they might uh, go to when they're seeking uh, you know, details or uh, information about Islam and Muslims. I would actually recommend that they go to well-recognized recognized uh, Muslim leaders and organizations rather than just doing Google searches, because unfortunately, given uh, the prevalence of anti-Muslim sentiment and organizations that are essentially uh, making money off of promoting anti-Muslim views, uh, th there's just so much anti-Muslim content out there. So the best thing to do is to go to well-recognized, reliable sources of sort of Muslim organizations or individuals themselves, and also to go to people who have been transformed in their experience, uh, sort of people who came, and, and I know several uh, people, I could provide a list to you afterwards of resources or individuals if you want to share it with your podcast, with your audience. Uh, but there are people who uh, might similarly be where some people are in, in a position of sort of either lack of knowledge and ignorance or a, a place of fear and hate. And they've really been moved by, you know, different things that have that they've experienced in their life. Uh, and they can sort of share that transformation journey that they had that might motivate some of your listeners to also pursue, especially if they're coming at it from a place of negativity. Um, and I would also just remind us uh, to turn to our own faith traditions and our own values again, you know, the, the loving your enemy kind of messaging and loving your neighbor messaging that exists in Christianity as well as in Islam uh, and finding those kinds of commonalities. And then once sort of folks get that, making sure it isn't limited just to them, bring in your network, bring in your friends and family and colleagues uh, and, you know, sort of education is part of the process, but those personal connections and personal stories are so profound and powerful in creating change, particularly when we're trying to change hearts and minds. As I tell people, facts and statistics and data, um, they're useful and they help address many of the sort of items of misinformation out there, the myths and misconceptions, but they alone do not change hearts and minds. What changes hearts and minds is going to be those personal stories, those personal interactions, those uh, positive uh, opportunities uh, that we can hopefully promote both virtually and in person. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. That sounds amazing. We, um, we have so much in common, uh, Anila, and it's so wonderful to hear you focus on that. I think the more we can um, focus on the things that we have in common rather than the things that separate us, the things that make us different, mm -hmm. um, the more we realize actually we have way more in common than we thought we did <laughs> on many levels, um, and not just in our faith, but even just as human beings. And I think humanizing one another is such an important step because otherwise you you get to the place where you just believe these these stereotypes about you know someone who isn't like you but who is different from you and it's too easy just to believe it and accept it and think well this is reality but the minute you know someone the minute you actually um, have a relationship with someone outside of your typical circle uh, well then you find out wow they're a lot more like me than I ever imagined. And so the more we can do that, I think that definitely to me is one of the first steps to the path uh, of peacemaking. 
That's absolutely true, Keith. Uh, you're so right on that. And one of the things that I tell people is when you have that personal connection, when you actually know somebody from a sort of marginalized group, it's a lot harder for others to manipulate you with false information or propaganda or misinformation campaigns. That's why it's so critical to build these personal relationships because you're actually strengthening your own ability to withstand the negative attacks, the false witness by others against your neighbors. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Anila. This has been such a great and rich conversation. And I know that it's inspiring me, um, even on a personal level, just to hear you share about, you know, your own journey in peacemaking and, um, and social justice. Um, so thank you. And we want our listeners to know how they can get um, connected and learn more about your work specifically. Yeah, thank you, Becca. Uh, absolutely. I'll provide the website uh, for MAPS Amen. That's www.mapsredmond.org backslash amen. Uh, so they can learn more specifically about Amen there. Uh, there's also a way to contact us on that page. Uh, and uh, that, that's a fantastic way to, to reach me as well. Yeah, thank you so much, Anila. Appreciate this, uh, what, what the work you all are doing in terms of peace building. And uh, it's an honor to be here and have this conversation with you. Wow, that was so good, man. Um, I mean, you know, one thing I thought that she said that really jumped out at me was when she talked about how all these amazing things that she's doing and, and everything that kind of propelled her to step out and to do the things that she's doing today, that it all began for her with this spiritual transformation that drove her back to her faith. And then also, I guess, you know, made her faith more real to her and also therefore inspired her to say, because of my faith and because of what I believe, uh, I see these problems in the world around me and I'm not just going to complain about them or, you know, uh, run away from them. Uh, yeah. I'm going to do something about them. And I think that is so powerful. So powerful. I love how, yeah, just hearing about how growing deeper in her faith led her to work with others who believe differently from her <laughs> and it, and that didn't detract from her faith. It actually made it stronger. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think it's just so easy. Um, and I'm just want to say, you know, uh, I, I'll confess <laughs> my, my <laughs> own, uh, my own thing here, you know, uh, it, it's just too easy to, you know, we look, read the news and we see things around us that, that we don't like. And we say, Oh, it's just so, it's so sad that, you know, these things are happening in the world that we don't like. And then that's, most of us just kind of go, oh, well, you know, what can we do about it? And so what I love is uh, in Anila's story, as I said, you know, she, she had this spiritual transformation and that shifted her from just seeing or, and complaining about these things, but saying, look, you know, like she talks about these four pillars, right? You know, mm -hmm. uh, educating other people outside her faith about Islam, like uh, recognizing there was sort of this, um, Islamophobia industry out there. And, and yeah. you can just look at that and say, well, you know, who am I, how am I supposed to, you know, uh, stop that or change that? Well, she decided, well, I'm going to at least try something to change it. And, and so working to educate people about Islam and then telling them the truth about it and having them meeting people, listening to people, um, mm -hmm. spending time with them, sharing meals with them. I think that yeah. is so powerful. And then she talks about, um, like her second pillar was building coalitions to address oppression and hate. And again, I think that what the, the critical thing there is to recognize that we can't do it alone. So even if you are an individual and you have a spiritual transformation and you're like, oh my gosh, this is, these things are wrong and we should fix this and I'm going to try and do it myself. You know, uh, it, I think it's important to recognize as Anila did that you can't like by yourself, mm -hmm. you'll never right. really change those things. But rather right. than give up and say, well, because I by myself can't change these things, you know, find other people with a similar vision and passion and heart. And by building a coalition of other people, and what I love too is that this coalition she's talking about, it isn't just Muslims, right? She She's right. working with Muslims and Christians and even, I think she said atheists, you know, other even unbelievers right. share uh, the desire to say, yes, there are things in the world that are broken and, and that 
we wish we're different, and then to say, how can we work together to change that? That's so awesome. Totally. I think it's so powerful because if you look across the aisle or look at other groups, there are probably so many common causes that we all care about, that we all want to see um, see goodness come into play, see transformation happen with so many different issues, both domestically and internationally. And so if we can connect with others on those things that we care about, we definitely can have a way more powerful impact. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think too, and this is something, um, I don't know if we've talked about this very much yet on the podcast, but this is certainly something I really hope that we will continue to to highlight. So if you're a follower of Jesus, and you and I are, and if you're a listener, you're, you're probably, pretty good chance you're also a Christian. Uh, you call yourself a follower of Jesus. Um, I think we have to take seriously Jesus's commands and teachings about being a peacemaker, being someone, um, you know, Jesus, you know, if we, if we went through and did a study of things that, you know, the red letters in the New Testament, things that came from the mouth of Jesus about loving our enemies, blessed are the peacemakers, mm-hmm. um, putting away our sword, um, you know, all, all of these things, you know, turning their cheek, blessing those who curse us, loving those who hate us, over, mm-hmm. overcoming evil with good, not with more evil. Um, right. These are so, I mean, I don't think you can, we really, we really can't ignore those things. And, um, right. and in the same way, Anila couldn't ignore the peace teachings in her faith of Islam. Mm-hmm. Uh, we as followers of Jesus can't ignore the teachings of the Prince of Peace. This is this is part of the messianic identity of Jesus. He's the Prince of Peace. Um, yes. And, you know, the, the prophecy in Isaiah about Jesus is that it says that this Messiah who comes, um, it says that those who follow him will decide. In other words, they decide. It's their decision. They say, we will study war no more. We will take our swords and beat them into plowshares. We, in other words... But because of the teachings of Jesus, right. they experience a transformation, a spiritual transformation that causes them to say, I want to walk in this path of peace. And uh, that's been such a, a powerful thing for me. I mean, that's part of my spiritual transformation is recognizing, am I following the Prince of Peace? If Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and I believe he is, if he really taught those things, and I believe he did then I do believe, you know, Jesus is serious when he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things that I say? And Mm so I personally, and again, I'm not trying to project this on somebody else and make somebody else feel guilty. I'm just saying, this is me. This is my my personal conviction, right? So my spiritual transformation was to to realize these things and say, in what ways am I a peacemaker? And, 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 to put a final point on, or not, I don't know if a final point, but put a, put, a, put a point on this. Um, there's also this place uh, where Paul talks about the fact that you and I have been given a ministry of reconciliation. And that's yeah. just everybody. That's not only certain people. That's not even, Paul doesn't even say that he has been given that ministry. Like, oh, this is only for apostles. No, he says, we, all of us, everyone who is a follower of Jesus, we have been given a ministry of reconciliation. And I remember once reading that and meditating on that and asking myself, and maybe it was the Holy Spirit whispering and asking me, but but the, the question, the thought came to my mind, how, what is my ministry of reconciliation? How's that coming? Like, mm-hmm. um, am I a minister of reconciliation? Who have I reconciled lately? How, mm-hmm. how do I daily pursue this ministry of reconciliation that according to Paul has been given to me? as a follower of Jesus. And I think those are the kinds of questions that we as followers of Jesus have to take seriously. And I believe if we do, that leads us into taking seriously this, this, um, this command of Jesus to be peacemakers. Yeah, I think it, you know, and Jesus modeled peacemaking himself, like the way that he reached across cultural, social boundaries, religious boundaries. And, you know, I'm just like thinking about the woman at the well and the parable of the Good Samaritan, like these different examples of Jesus again and again, emphasizing that you're called to 
yeah, be ministers of reconciliation and reach across those divides to um, to love and and build relationships with people. Yeah, I I, yeah, I totally agree. I, I and this is what I'm so excited about. You know, being involved with Peace Catalyst. Um, when when Wendy and I lived in Idaho before we moved to El Paso, we we got we were invited to a peace feast um, that some friends of ours were doing. Uh, mm-hmm. Nick and Laura uh, mm-hmm. Armstrong up in Boise. Yeah, we got to meet them and almost right away. I think we'd only lived there a couple of weeks and we and I had coffee with Nick and um, found out they were working with Peace Catalyst and we were invited mm-hmm. to a peace feast. And oh my gosh, it was such a powerful thing. So maybe we should explain what that is. What is a peace yeah. feast? Well, go ahead. I know. <laughs> Let me go ahead and say. <laughs> so I have not had the privilege of being a part of a peace feast oh, no. yet. I think mostly due to COVID, because when I started working with Peace Catalyst, yeah, it was like six months before COVID. But um, my understanding, and you can elaborate, is that it's about, you know, Christians, Muslims, and their neighbors coming together to talk and get to know each other while sharing a meal. And, you know, food is such an important um, piece of conversation and peacemaking, I think, because food really brings us together. It brings us to the table. It's something we all enjoy doing. And, you know, there isn't a single culture that doesn't gather around um, for food, right? For meals. And so there's something really powerful, but you can probably elaborate on that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's the basic idea. So um, it was basically hosted in a church. There was a church there in Idaho that um, in Boise that allowed them to host it. Um, they catered the food from a local um, Mediterranean restaurant owned by a guy that I had gotten to know. It's so funny because I'd gotten to know the owner of that restaurant and he became like a, a friend. I mean, seriously, the first time I went in there, he gave me a hug when I left. He, he said, he, I, it was so powerful. He he was, um, he said, you know, he gave me a hug and he, his English was not very good. And um, by the way, it was amazing. And, uh, <laughs> but after he gave me a hug and he said, you're, you're a Christian. Uh, I am a Muslim, but he goes, we have one God. And he goes, we are brothers. And it was beautiful. I mean, it brought tears to my eyes. It was such a beautiful experience. So anyway, we ended up, they ended up catering the food. And this was coincidentally, I had nothing to do with this. They they catered the food from that man's restaurant, which was cool. like, phenomenal food, great food. Um, and so it was Christians and Muslims. And we sat down across the table from each other. And we were, I, I think we were encouraged to sort of separate. So we weren't, it wasn't Christians on one side, Muslims on the other. each table, almost every other, pardon me, my voice, uh, like basically every other seat was a, you know, a Christian, Muslim, Christian, Muslim all around the table. Hmm. And we had our food and um, there were some, they had some index cards on the table that had some kind of conversation questions to kind of get things rolling. But honestly, we didn't, our table didn't really use them. I think other tables, I saw them going through the questions, but our table, we just started talking the way you would talk to anybody like, uh, I think one woman was a Muslim woman was talking about her daughter uh, looking at colleges and deciding what college she was going to go to when she graduated high school. And the mom was worried about her, you know, being away from home and she was worried, would she continue to practice her faith or would she, you know, get pulled in by some crowds, you know, to go partying and doing other things. And, um, mm-hmm. and here's the beautiful thing about it. We just started talking and what we were doing was talking not as Christians and Muslims. We were talking as parents right? Because mm-hmm. everyone around that table had kids. And so yeah. we could all relate to what she was saying. Wow. And um, I love that. It was just beautiful. And then from there, the conversation naturally flowed into other conversations about parenting or about college <laughs> or about, you know, whatever. And um, it was just beautiful. And I think the, the, here's the key thing, I think, about these peace feasts and, and having these conversations over a meal, as you said. Um, the most obvious thing that you come away with. I think if you come away with nothing, you you mm. would come away with this. Mm. That, that wow, Muslims are just like me. They're mm. they're moms and dads. They have jobs. They have concerns mm-hmm. and worries that are just like mine, right? What am I? How are my kids doing? And how are they gonna, you know, how are they gonna move on in the world? And, and am I am I gonna be able to make enough money to send them to college? And what about, you know, all mm. these other things that that you question as well? That you your concerns are the same. And yeah. it really, it really, and I think Anila talked about that, you know, kind of, this is part of that education about the stereotypes. And as long as somebody is in that other group, 
and you don't know anybody <laughs> in that other group and you've never met anybody, had a conversation with somebody uh, mm-hmm. in from that other group outside of your circles, um, yeah. you can believe all kinds of crazy things about them until mm-hmm. you sit down with them. And, and really those peace feasts are very powerful, I think, to humanize one another, uh, mm-hmm. to, to recognize so much, again, to focus on what we have in common and right. recognizing that it's what we have in common that really brings, um, you know, positive relationships, friendships, and eventually things that lead to, uh, you know, peace, which is a beautiful thing. I love that. Wow. That's so amazing. I need to go to Peace Feast as soon as, as soon as possible. (laughs) Please. I hope it is over. I hope, I hope it's this year at least. Um, yeah, to get back to a Peace Feast again would be wonderful. Um, because, yeah, it is important. You know, Jesus Jesus always sat down and ate meals, right? You notice all the time he's he's sitting down to eat you know, fish or bread or he's he's invited to somebody's house or sometimes he's just inviting himself to somebody's house. Like, hey, I'm eating at your house tonight. What are we eating? Let's go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's Zacchaeus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think I love what you're saying about um, how we can have all these preconceived notions about different groups of people but if we haven't actually sat down and gotten to know one of them how can we really know anything about who they are and um I think yeah that's such a powerful point because for me it was when I the first time I traveled to the Middle East and I got to know Muslims and it was like wow you are just like me (laughs) like we have yeah like exactly what you're saying we're all part of the human race and um are all image bearers of God so yeah and I think the other thing I think that's so important too is that when, when we were having these this peace feast, and um, and I was I was blessed actually when we moved to El Paso we hosted something here in El Paso, uh, very similar to that, but this was hosted at a uh, at a Muslim, um, sort of a restaurant. Uh, it was a Muslim owned, mm-hmm. kind of, uh, I guess it's a ministry here locally in El Paso. It's called the Turkish Raindrop House. And uh, we had oh, an amazing cool. meal. There was like 40-something people, Christians and Muslims, came together. And I, I spoke about um, what we have in common, uh, what, bring, you know, what, what, what unites us and, and what we have in common between Christians and Muslims. And it was a beautiful conversation. And um, so, so very, very similar to the Peace Feast idea, too, where when Muslims and Christians get together, and I think this is such a key thing. Uh, and if you've never been to a Peace Feast and if you don't understand kind of the what, what Peace Catalyst is doing and what we're all about. It's mm-hmm. not about getting Christians and Muslims together to debate. We don't come right. together to say, okay, who's right or who's wrong. Right. Um, what we come together to do is to listen and to, again, focus on what we have in common, which, again, is on one level is just our humanity, and mm-hmm. on the, on a, but on an even deeper level, spiritually what we have in common is jesus um and and most christians are very shocked to when they tell them that that you know jesus is mentioned a lot in the quran and right. uh, and muslims believe things about jesus that that you believe about jesus right muslims believe that jesus is um that he's alive right now um mm-hmm. that he's coming back to judge the world um uh, that he in the quran he gives life um he creates life he mm-hmm. uh he heals people he does miracles mm-hmm. Um, you know, all these things. And so there's, a, there, I can't remember off the top of my head, but there's a whole list of things that, uh, yeah. so it's like this, it's like, you know, imagine, imagine, you know, you have a neighbor and, um, and that neighbor is not a Christian, but I came to you and I said, Hey, you know, that neighbor that lives next door to you, do you know that your neighbor next door, you know, he's not a Christian, but do you know what he does believe that you also believe he believes mm-hmm. in Jesus. He believes that Jesus was the Messiah. He believes that Jesus did miracles. He believes that Jesus um, created life and raised the dead. And he believes mm-hmm. that Jesus is alive right now, and he's coming back one day to judge the world. Now, if you knew all of that, you knew that your neighbor believed all those things, Do you? would you have some confidence to go next door and talk to your neighbor and say, hey, can we just, mm-hmm. can we just talk about Jesus a little bit, about those things that we agree about, Jesus? Mm-hmm. What a beautiful entry point to yeah. have a conversation. Um, and this is this is why I'm actually so excited to work with Peace Catalyst because it's shown me this. It's taught me that I have so much beautiful, um, you know, agreement and, and with with Muslims on many things. Now, yes, there's many things we don't agree on, but if we focus on the things we do agree on, 
Yeah. That's that's the, uh, the and the beginning of that conversation is about Jesus. Um, yeah. And again, our goal is not to say, well, who's right and who's wrong. And if you kind of stay on that focus of Jesus mm-hmm. and the things we believe in common about Jesus, mm-hmm. that is the beginning of a really wonderful conversation. And I believe maybe even a wonderful friendship. That common ground is such a beautiful thing. And I think a lot of us, including myself as Christians, really don't know, you know, that Muslims think that about Jesus or they believe the same things that we do in addition to some of the differences. But I think it's it's the idea of fo- like focusing on that common ground and just having awesome conversations with your neighbors about things that <laughs> that you think are similar. Yeah. And I you know, I think for me as a Christian, like I'm still learning new things about my Muslim neighbors and and what they think. You know, it's kind of this it's kind of a fun journey of getting to know people and understanding where they're coming from and um and what they think and what they believe and it's it's kind of like growing in a relationship with anyone else is just discovering more of, of who they are yeah. and sharing yourself in an authentic way too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, it's also so helpful. I would just say even for my own spiritual transformation, which by the way, isn't something that happened a long time ago, right? I think spiritual transformation should be something that's ongoing, right? So in my ongoing totally. spiritual transformation process that I'm, that I'm continuing to experience, what I want to do is admit that I don't know everything that I still have a lot to learn, but I'm not going to learn anything if I don't, number one, stop talking. (laughs) Number two, listen. And number three, specifically listen to people that I don't um, automatically agree with everything that, you know, so, so spending that time in humility to listen to others and to recognize, oh, maybe there is something I can learn from from these other people. Uh, I guarantee you, you will, if you did that, you will learn that. And, and that's one of the reasons why we were so excited to do this podcast series, because, man, these women are amazing and yeah. inspiring, and there is so much we can learn from them. And I think that's a beautiful place to begin, to begin from this place of humility, of listening and learning, uh, and then working together. Uh, that, that, to me, is what Peace Catalyst is all about. And again, I'm just trying to be a learner, uh, and yeah. if I can, share what I'm learning, but to be honest, most of what I've learned is from making mistakes. And so, <laughs> so you can learn from some of the mistakes that I've made. Making mistakes is inherent to peacemaking, right? <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, thank you all for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes or Spotify. And for more info about Peace Catalyst and to help support our peacebuilding work, definitely check out our website at peacecatalyst.org. All right. Thanks, everybody.